Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm your host, Abby Martin. This week, the Obama administration made a bizarre announcement that Venezuela is a, quote, extraordinary threat to national security and that he's, quote, deeply concerned about its human rights abuses, a declaration necessary to justify an entire new round of harsh sanctions. So to understand why this is really happening, I'm joined now by Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research and president of Just Foreign Policy. His work specializes in Latin America and international economic policy. And he just wrote an excellent article for Al Jazeera explaining the hidden agenda behind this absurd move. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. First, I want to get your reaction to the State Department recently saying it has a long-standing policy against backing coups. Yes, well, um, the United States did more than back the coup, uh, the military coup in 2002 against uh, Chavez, against President Chavez of Venezuela. They actually succeeded in getting rid of him for a couple of days. And uh, there's plenty of documentary evidence of this. For instance, the State Department itself uh, wrote a report that said, and I'll quote from it, that they provided training, institution building, and other support to individuals and organizations understood to be actively involved in the brief ouster of President Hugo Chavez. That was the State Department's own report. And there's a whole pile of other evidence that the U.S. media just ignores uh, you know, the, they had advanced knowledge of the coup, according to their own CIA documents. And yet when the coup happened, the White House got on the TV and said it wasn't a coup that had Chavez had resigned. They actually knew what was going on and they lied about it to try and help the coup succeed. So they did quite a bit just from what we know. Uh, from U.S. documents. And they've been doing that ever since. They stepped up money, if you just, uh, to the opposition after the coup. Uh, and so there's been, uh, uh, there's been attempts to get rid of this government for the last 13 years at least. And the United States has been strongly backing them all along. And specifically in Venezuela, uh, Jen Psaki called the accusations that the U.S. is planning regime change now is, quote, ludicrous. I wanted to get your response to that as well. Well, uh, again, if you go to any foreign minister or president in South America and most of Latin America, all of them believe that, yeah, the U.S. is trying to get rid of this government because of the whole record of the last decade and because nothing has changed. And this... uh, particular move imposing sanctions, which is a very drastic move. It's very, you know, it's illegal under the charter of the Organization of American States. And you noted the language that he used. He actually called it a national emergency for the United States. That's because that's required by law here. Okay, so this is an extreme measure uh, by anybody's uh, account. And this too is seen throughout uh, the Latin American governments as an attempt to destabilize Venezuela. That is actually the word that even Michelle Bachelet used last year when uh, there were organizations and violent demonstrations trying to get rid of the government last year, which the United States also supported. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, April of 2013, when they had the last presidential election in Venezuela, so that's almost two years ago, Uh, John Kerry was the only foreign minister in the whole world, uh, our Secretary of State, 
who refused to recognize the clear and unambiguous results of the Venezuelan elections. And he was so isolated and there was so much pressure from the rest of the hemisphere that he eventually had to back down after he lost the support of the only two people he had in the world, the right-wing government of Spain and, uh, of course, the secretary general of the OAS, who's not even on their side this time. So I would actually predict that he's going to have to back off. He's so isolated. Uh, The White House is so isolated right now in Latin America. It's completely negated any positive effect they might have gotten from uh, this move towards normalizing relations with Cuba. Right. I mean, what message is this sending uh, right in the aftermath of of this kind of alleged new leaf uh, with Cuba? I mean, how can the Obama administration acknowledge its isolationist policy toward Cuba is outdated while simultaneously trying to undermine Venezuela. Yeah, a lot of people have asked about that because it does seem strange. And I think the message they're sending is our policy hasn't changed. We've decided that the embargo didn't work. It didn't serve our purposes, which is to get rid of the Cuban government. And so I mean, if you look at the elite in this country, they've wanted to get rid of the embargo since the 90s, even before. And they haven't been able to do it, partly because of the Florida lobby, you know, the right-wing Cubans. And Obama, you know, he is kind of sending a message that, yeah, you you know, we're open in Cuba, but guess what? Uh, We haven't changed at all. We want to get rid of all the left governments, democratically elected or not. And that has been... Obama's policy uh, since he took over. And that's why his administration is, you know, really uh, more isolated right now in Latin America than even George W. Bush was. And that's something that most people can't see because the media gives Obama a very positive image, whereas Bush, you know, invading Iraq and everything else, he had a more negative image. And that's why you have to look at what the governments are saying. And that's exactly what you don't see in the media until today, finally, the New York Times ran the first article in the Western major media about what the rest of Latin American governments or the rest of the hemispheric governments think about U.S. policy towards Venezuela. And what did they say? They said that they are really against it. And I want to read just uh, one quote from the article because it was the best one. It came from President Rafael Correa of Ecuador. And he said, it must be a bad, a joke in bad taste, uh, referring to the sanction, that reminds us of the darkest hours when we received invasions and dictatorships imposed by the imperialists, referring, of course, to the United States. And then he said, can't they understand that Latin America has changed? And that really sums it up, because you've had this enormous change, especially in South America, where, you know, a lot of people call it the second independence of Latin America. Since uh, roughly 1999 or 2000, it began, where one after another government, a country elected left governments, and there's been huge economic changes, a huge decline in poverty after it increased over the previous 20 years, and a, a, a huge uh, change in the independence, an independent foreign policy, independent economic policy, independence from the United States. And they don't get it. 
you know, and it isn't just them. You can read all the policy journals here in Washington, foreign affairs, foreign policy, and you don't see any of the policymakers saying, look, we have a new reality, you know, like they did when, when Nixon went to China, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it was a recognition that uh, we can't do this. Now, a lot of people thought, well, here's Obama finally saying the Cuba policy is over, we're gonna change. They thought that was a turning point. And it's very nice, don't get me wrong, it's symbolic. But you can see from this that they're still out to lunch. They have no idea what they're dealing with. When it comes to the Cuba policy, um, it's amazing. I mean, they they haven't, fa- un, you know, they have an unfazed uh, regimen of the twenty million dollars on the ground to overthrow Castro. Still to this day, with the USAID programs, all the immigration policies. I mean, there's so many things. The Guantanamo Bay base. Yeah. I mean, these things. Nothing can be normal until all of these things are at a level playing field here. Why now? Why is this happening now? Because, of course, I mean, it's not like the CIA ever really gave up on Venezuela, but why? It just seems very random for Obama to just randomly say Venezuela is a huge threat. I mean, what the hell happened at this particular moment in time? Well, you got to remember, this is the second round of these sanctions. The last one was passed in December. And again, you know, look at the co-authors of this bill. It was Marco Rubio and it was... uh, the now soon to be indicted uh, uh, Robert Menendez, the senator, and then the Obama, uh, the White House actually said, you know, we went further than they did with these new sanctions. So this is kind of the irony, and again, the message: what is it sending to Latin America? Because these governments, you know, they have foreign ministries, they have embassies, they know, they follow the politics here, and they're think, you know, what are they thinking? Obama has not only. Uh, move to the right, he is now uh, in the kind of in the neocon camp with because uh, he's doing what they want. Why is it? Why now? I think there are several things at work. It isn't that easy to explain uh, for sure, but because there are a lot of conflicts. Like uh, this one seemed like it came from the White House because the State Department didn't seem to, just from their statements and their press conferences, you know, they didn't seem to be very supportive of this. They're divided. There's definitely divisions between the State Department, the Pentagon, the White House, the 16 intelligence agencies. Very hard to say, since they don't have a coherent Latin American policy, you know, it's very hard to say why. But, I, you know, if I had to give it my best guess, I would say that there's a struggle within the policymaking community here. That includes all of those institutions that I just mentioned. And some of them think this is really stupid. And that could even be a majority. In other words, from their point of view, this doesn't help the opposition. The main opposition group in Venezuela, uh, which represents most of the, not the craziest, but most of the opposition, said this is going to hurt them. These new sanctions are going to hurt them. Okay, It's going to rally people around the government, Mm -hmm. just like the sanctions against Russia Mm -hmm. pushed Putin's approval rating up to 85%. Okay, So why do they do it anyway? I think that the hardliners kind of won out. And what do the hardliners want? They probably know that this doesn't help them either. But what they want to do is close off any path towards normalization of relations with Venezuela. And that's what this is doing. You see, if you look back just a few months, 
the U.S. Uh, accepted a new charge d'affaires, which is the 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 second in command if you don't have an ambassador. And they were kind of moving towards restoring ambassadorial relationships with Venezuela. And every time Obama tried to do that, he got sabotaged by the right, okay? So a couple times, uh, Obama did try to reestablish full ambassadorial diplomatic relations with Venezuela. Now that isn't such a big deal. That isn't like he's really trying to improve things because you have like a hundred year tradition in U.S. diplomacy of almost never breaking diplomatic relations. You know, the one case you can think of in recent history, I mean, uh, is where the U.S. initiated was Iran when they kidnapped the hostages in 79, you know. It's very, very rare. So, uh, he wanted to move towards some normalization, and he gets cut off every time by people in the right wing in Congress, the right wing, they sabotage it in various ways. So now the hard line seems to have won out, and they're playing the long game. They're playing the, their game is, we want to delegitimize this government. We don't care if it makes things worse for the opposition right now. The main thing we don't want is a reconciliation between the US and, uh, and Venezuela. And this move puts that pretty far in the distance. Uh, it almost seems like, you know, the Cuba, of course, not really changing the policy. They're just acknowledging that the isolationism didn't work. And then, of course, they're doubling down on the isolationism with Venezuela. But it almost seems like it's a punishment for these countries to dare kind of encapsulate other economic models as well. And how dare you kind of buck U.S. hegemony, especially when it comes to the point that Venezuela is extremely oil rich. Um, and it does stand up to imperialism, you know, often. Uh, talk about kind of that climate and, and why just the, the existence of Venezuela and, and um, the entire revolution that happened there is so threatening to the U.S. establishment. Well, if you look, as I mentioned, you know, the United States used to have enormous influence in Latin America just 15 years ago. It had the IMF there. And uh, they were having played an enormous role in economic policy in these countries. It uh, basically, if you look at the WikiLeaks cables, had a huge influence over their foreign policy. Uh, this has all disappeared in the last 15 years. Now, not for everyone, the poorest and weakest countries are still weak and victimized as they were. They over, you know, the U.S. helped overthrow the government of Honduras, as you know, in 2009. Uh, so they look at it as a chess game. They have a Cold War kind of strategy. Anytime we see a chance to get rid of a left government in Latin America, we're going to take it. They did it in Honduras in 2009, Haiti in 2004, uh, Paraguay, they helped in 2012, and uh, left president. Um, and so that is their overall strategy. Now, what uh, can they do? You know, in the case of Venezuela, I think, you know, sitting on the world's largest oil reserve, you know, it's not so much, I think there's a part of the left that thinks it's all about the oil itself. I don't really see it that way, you know. Even when Saddam Hussein, when, when the U.S. was overthrowing, I mean, had a no-fly zone and was trying to destroy and get rid of his government, his government was still the second largest supplier of oil to the U.S. Uh, from the Middle East. You got to sell the oil. Everybody's going to sell their oil. I, I think the reason we end up... Yeah, we do. That's right. The reason we end up in uh, conflicts with oil states 
repeatedly, uh, Iraq, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, is more because these states are going to be uh, regional players and they're going to have a certain independence that you don't have, you only have when you have that kind of oil. And, and the oil itself is important too, but it's mainly a world strategic game to them. It isn't that the U.S. has, especially now where, you know, we have right. we're we producing fracking going on. We don't. We have you know. so much oil now that right. we don't even need it, and uh, so uh, that's why you have that uh, problem. That is why, no matter what uh, Chavez would have done, he could have been quiet and diplomatic, and not said anything about the United States, and they would have still tried to get right. rid of him. And uh, yeah, I think that's. The main thing, they have this strategy and they see Venezuela as weak right now. You know, the economy shrank last year. Inflation was 68%. Uh, there's widespread shortages. The president's approval ratings now. They think this is a target. And when they see that, uh, again, they have different strategies. The part of the opposition there, you know, wants to pursue an electoral strategy. But the U.S., the hardliners here, they don't want to wait for that. They don't know what's going to happen to the price of oil. You know, if you look at a graph of the predictions, the forecast for oil prices for the last few decades, and then what actually happened, it looks, there's not a lot of correlation. You know, no one can really predict it. So uh, you've got a parliamentary election in December. You don't have another presidential election for quite a while. Um they don't know what's going to happen. Also, the government could fix its economic problems. Those are quite fixable, actually. And at some point, I think they will. So they're thinking, you know, like the like the people that went into the streets uh, last year, that you have to strike when you have your chance. Let's talk about the economics a little bit, because, of course, you know, 95% of Venezuela's exports right now are oil-based. I mean, how is that sustainable? Explain kind of the current economic climate. You said inflation is uh, astronomical. People all over the Western press are just saying the economy is in shambles. Uh, kind of give us some context on that. Well, first, you always have to remember that everything you read about Venezuela is exaggerated. <laughs> and, you know, the media has been saying that Venezuela's economy was going to fall apart uh, for the last uh, 15 years. And they said that even when the economy was booming and inflation was falling, and they've always said that. So, you know, what did Ann Landers used to say? Even a stop clock is right yeah. twice a day. Clock, yeah. <laughs> so uh, are they going to turn out to be right? I don't even think they're going to turn out to be right here. I mean, yeah, inflation's a serious problem right now. Uh, but you have to remember it, it, it was higher before Chavez than it is now. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the economy, say from 2004, which is right after they got control over their oil resources, because it was previously controlled by the opposition, which was using it to overthrow the government. Uh, the economy's done pretty well over the last 10 years. You still have the vast majority of Venezuelans, even with this last year of recession, they lost 3% of GDP. It's not like Greece that lost a quarter of its output in you know six-year depression. So even with what's happened there, uh, the vast majority are still way better off. Now, that's not going to be the case in a few years if this continues, but I don't think it's going to uh, continue. And 
that's where, I mean, if you want, we can get into what the fundamental economic problems are and what the government has to do to fix them. Well, I wanted to, you to mention quickly about how sanctions exacerbate the economic problems there. Well, they, they, what they do is the sanctions won't directly affect the economy, but it's a way of undermining the government, showing that this great power is got you know, showing overtly instead of what they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. covertly and quietly with the NED and USAID money. It's showing them very directly to the world. This is a target. Well, you know, it hurt Russia, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the political and investment impact of the sanctions in Russia was probably greater than the direct impact. In other words, it showed a, a lot of investment dried up right away because they don't know what's going to happen next, right. you know? And that's what they're, that's part of what they're trying to do is to undermine the economy. Very similar actually to what the European Central Bank is doing to Greece right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't impose sanctions, but they immediately cut off the main line of credit from Greece to the central bank. Why? Because they want to undermine the government. So yeah, that's, that's part of what they're doing. And you mentioned in your article uh, the kind of the comparisons between uh, Reagan and his decree in Nicaragua. I wanted you to kind of uh, explain that. Sure. Well, in 1985, Ronald Reagan used the same language because it's required by U.S. law uh, when you impose these kind of sanctions to say that, you know, uh, to declare a national emergency and to say that uh, Nicaragua was an extraordinary security threat to the United States. And there were a lot of jokes about it. I mentioned this before the um, uh, Reagan was trying to terrify you know, Reagan was really aggressive about this, much more than Obama. I mean, he would get up on TV all the time and talk about the threat to the United States, you know, from this little, I mean, it wasn't even an oil-rich country. This is the poorest country, second, third poorest country in the hemisphere. And he would say, you know, they're only two days drive from Harlingen, Texas. And at the time, Doonesbury had a whole series of cartoons <laughs> like ridiculing this. And, you know, and sadly, it shows how far back are we. I mean, right, nobody's right. making fun of Obama for right. saying this today. And it's quite a bit, it's quite as ridiculous. And, uh, and you know, this was at the height, not the height of the Cold War, but this was still big Cold War time. And still people laughed at him and made fun of him for saying these kind of things. But it was serious in the sense that they created a terrible war. I was there actually in the in uh, 86, 87. And, you know, they destroyed the economy of Nicaragua. And then in 1990, President uh, Bush I, the father, uh, actually said that the war and the embargo was going to continue until they voted, people voted the Sandinistas out of office. They actually elected that government um, in 84. In 1990, they had an election. The U.S. poured money. They violated the agreement that Jimmy Carter negotiated, which said the U.S. wasn't supposed to pour any money into the election for the opposition. And then they threatened the voters uh, overtly. Um, And so the Sandinistas lost. Uh, And that is how they got rid of them. Now, they didn't get rid of them forever. In 2007, they came back years later, and they are now the governing uh, party which is another thing what Correa was talking about. Mm-hmm. Don't they understand that Don't Latin America has changed? We get to elect our own governments right. now. Right. But here, they don't get that. No. Here in Washington, <laughs> they still don't get it. In the bubble of D.C. It really is a bubble. You know, I don't even think that we need to get into the complete 
blatant, absurd hypocrisy of even saying that Obama's concerned about Venezuela's human rights abuses. I mean, here we are talking about a country that is allied staunchly with Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, summarily executes people with swords, beheads them. Uh, Israel, you know, kills 2000 human beings uh, saying that they're all human shields. And there's really no outcry about that, Mark. Yeah. And you can even look at Latin America too. You know what they, the kind of military and security uh, assistance, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to give to Colombia, to Mexico, oh, yeah. <laughs> to Honduras, where, you know. Forced disappearances or rampant torture. Colombians' military, this is now accepted by everyone, murdered extrajudicial executions. I don't mean firefights and collateral damage, but murdered of innocent civilians, 5,700 between 2000 and 2010. Oh my God. Was step up military and security aid. So, yeah, nobody in Latin America for sure takes seriously the idea that this has anything to do with human rights. You know, let's have an adult debate. Let's be honest about the motives here. I mean, don't don't keep treating us like we're all morons. Um, you know, Mark, what do you think needs to be improved about Venezuela? How do you recommend that we can best combat kind of this incessant foreign subversion while supporting the Venezuelan people truly um, to evolve on their own? Well, it's a tough battle because the media has successfully demonized Venezuela for most people, most people are not going to, you know, they can't hire a research assistant to find out what's going on. And the media is giving a constant drumbeat, which goes along with U.S. policy. And this it happens almost always when the United States has a target for a regime change, whether it's Iraq, Iran, Russia, Venezuela. Um, you know, I don't know that much about North Korea, but probably some of the things we hear about them aren't mm-hmm. true either, even if it's a terrible dictatorship. Right. right. <laughs> you know? And uh, so um, I think the main thing is education and also getting Congress. You know, the Congress, you know, right now, the Congress is on the wrong side of foreign policy. That is, when the administration even tries to do something right, like engage with Iran, you get this rebellion, like the 47 senators mm-hmm. that signed that letter. Historically, that hasn't uh, always been true. The best periods in uh, kind of modern history of foreign policy in the U.S. were led by the Congress when they cut off aid to the, to the uh, terrorists in Nicaragua in the 1980s. And, you know, Reagan almost ended up impeached because he started to supply the money from the basement of the White House and trading arms. And that was the Iran-Contra scandal. That was because you had hundreds of thousands of people here, grassroots movements that forced the Congress to cut off aid. Uh, And he had to do it illegally. You had uh, similar uh, pressure and action in the 70s when uh, the Congress cut off aid to the right-wing groups in Southern Africa, uh, for example, and changed U.S. foreign policy temporarily. And so that's generally the Congress, because the Congress is more accountable than the executive in in general. Mm -hmm. 
so it's a very rare thing right now. I think it's a temporary thing, actually, because, you know, since the Great Recession, uh, a lot of actors, I don't mean Hollywood actors, but, you know, political actors and activists in this country have focused more on domestic politics mm-hmm. And so than they had in the past. And so foreign policy is more ignored. And so you get this phenomenon where the Congress, the lobby groups like the Israel lobby, which actually, you know, has suffered several defeats in the last year, uh, but nonetheless is still very powerful. And the right wing uh, Cuba neocon Mm -hmm. lobby, which is very hard to separate from the Israel lobby. They're so intertwined. Mm -hmm. These groups Uh, don't have the kind of opposition that they had in the 80s from grassroots movements uh, that... uh, And and so uh, that's... I think it's temporary. I think ultimately Congress is going to play more of a role. And they did. I'll give you one example. I mean, if you look at the... When Obama wanted to bomb Syria, uh, you know... But then he just rebranded it a year later as a fight against ISIS, and there was no opposition. Well, that's true, but he had a little help from ISIS. If ISIS yeah, hadn't <laughs> existed, and uh, ISIS got a little help from this, from yeah, and it wasn't the same plan before. either. It was another intervention. Yeah, yeah. But the particular intervention, which would have really would have put an end to the negotiations right. with Iran, it would have, that was the first time in my life where the anti-war movement actually stopped a war before it started. So there's people here. You know, the problem is we don't have a a media that recognizes an independent civil Mm. society on foreign policy in this country, Mm. you know, and so you don't hear as much about it. But those who followed it, I'm sure you did, know that that's what really stopped him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could not, he literally couldn't get the votes. You could, and Fire Dog Lake had the whip count every day, and you could see one after another. Yeah. Members of Congress said, no, we're not going to vote for it. That's because they got swamped by their constituents. So I think that's where the future is going to be. And 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 one of the reasons it's so bad uh, that the, on Latin America is because, you know, most of these activists have, for understandable reasons, focused on the part of the world where the real blood and destruction is and they haven't been as worried about Latin America because the U.S. is not uh, intervening in the same way and causing the kind of horrible destruction that they've caused in the in the uh, Arab Middle East. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark Weisrup, for breaking all of that down. Everyone check out Mark's work at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thanks so much, Mark, for sitting down with me.